Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Exactly, exactly. All right, so... Looks like everything's still working with the new Mavericks. So that's good. OS 10.9, very exciting. All I did all day yesterday was download versions of the new Mac operating system. Another one of our computers is home playing right now. It's all very exciting. My son has already declared that he hates it, even though he's not seen it. <laughs> he hates iOS 7. He, though he did give iOS 7 3 out of 5 in his official review of his podcast. Because he gives everything 3 out of 5. <laughs> okay, so the nice thing is this must seem to be working fine. Uh, so today we're talking about foraging relations. Um, oh, this means getting food, right? So animals face a lot of problems when it comes to getting food. Yeah. Okay. Um, one question you can ask. Now these questions can be asked in the animal's lifetime, moment to moment, or we could be thinking of the animal asking this question in over evolutionary time. Okay, so it's either or, or perhaps both. So what should be eaten? So you've got an animal that, you know, you think about, uh, I can just go chickadees. Uh, chickadees will eat seeds and nuts and things like that, but they'll also eat bugs. Which one should you eat? They're going to have different nutritional values, etc. Um, deciding to eat or not, is it worth it? Why would it might not be worth eating? Ideas? Yeah. yeah, but so don't eat this because it might be sick, make you sick. But I mean, what about is it even worth eating at all? JJ, you mean is the act of eating? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. As opposed to like not eating. No, so eating versus not eating right now. Uh, might not be a good time to hunt or forage. So middle of the night is probably not a good sure. time to. Maybe you don't have to get food will it pose uh, a risk for your, your life. Sure. You're not going to go and eat it. Sure. No, that's sensible, yeah. Yeah. Uh, other idea. Maybe I had one. Or is it the same, was it the same one as, as that? Um, I was going to say, like, yeah, extending it, extending the amount of energy to extend the time to eat something if that food doesn't have, like, as much value as something else. Okay. Okay. Other ideas? Maddie, was there small same lines? I was going to say, maybe it's. Like difficult to get to. Like yeah, and we actually define that. We call that handling time. Uh, if the food's difficult to sort of open up, or we could talk about travel time is difficult to get to. That's both of those things. So it might be that there is delicious food and you know where it is, except that you gotta walk there, right? And it's you can think of these things a lot of times. I know when I was a graduate student, learning a lot about this stuff. We used to always use the example about these kind of foraging decisions about you're, you're out one night and you're hungry and if you're a little bit hungry and you walk by McDonald's, you think, I can do better than that. If you're really, really hungry, you go to McDonald's. The quality may not be as good, but you're still getting food. Right? Uh, on the other hand, sometimes you might have a craving of some sort. Well, I want dessert. We can think of that as the animal needs energy, sugar, carbohydrates, right? Well, it doesn't matter how many times you walk by the guy selling hot dogs. You just walk by some street vendor selling hot dogs or Chinese food, you think, I really have to have dessert. Now, for me, dessert is just more of the main course. That's why I might give you one dessert. For dessert, I'd like another steak, please. But, uh, so you can think a lot of these kind of things. Well, I'm not saying that we're doing this using these sort of optimal foraging ideas we'll talk about today. The examples can be somewhat instructive when you think about it that way. So it's even worth eating at any given time. So what to eat? So again, this is the sort of McDonald's versus uh, pan of clothes. That sucks. That's terrible. Isn't that a horrible, horrible thing? Hannah, it's a good restaurant. I'm sorry, it was a good restaurant. It made you feel like you were in Sault Ste. Marie when you were in there. <laughs> you know, you felt like you were somewhere where they had good restaurants. I don't know. I don't have the total inside story. I just saw that it was closed. 
It sucks though. I really like that place. I really like that place. Where we always used to, we always just used to take our people that we were having for job interviews. We take them there for dinner. It's like, oh yeah, this city's full of places like this. <laughs> of course, it's not. It makes me sad. That's all. Anyway, where was I? Yes. Decide what to eat. You want to go to Canada? Well, can't be more. Or you want to go to McDonald's? Deciding when to stop eating. Now, it's not just that I'm getting so full, I can't move. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's not like most animals go to all-you-can-eat buffets. Remember Iron Chef Walk? Remember that place? Years ago. I was wondering if they got sued out of existence, perhaps, by Fuji Television. Um, nobody watched the original Iron Chef? A couple of you did. Iron Chef! where I learned how to say, we now unveil the mystery ingredient in Japanese. What are people Which I think I'm saying wrong. It's probably something really horribly offensive. <laughs> Japanese students in the room. You appear to work now. It's associated with that. So you know, just um, not so much should I stop eating, or I've got to stop eating these all-you-can-eat shrimps because I think I'm going to vomit. It's more like... I should maybe leave this place and go somewhere else. So I'm in a patchy environment. So we call that it's a patchy environment. That's where the food comes in patches. It's not so not like a pasture, right? So you're not a grazing animal where it's like all of the doors is dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but your animal is let's say say something that eats seeds. So there's only so many seeds uh, in, in a, on a given tree, and at some point you might want to leave because. It's getting to be a lot of work to eat food here. I can go somewhere else and get something. Even though you're still hungry, you still need food, it may not be worth it anymore. What makes sense to go somewhere else? There's also the issue of finding food. The food itself might be hidden. This could be through camouflage of a prey item. And when I'm saying prey item here, I'm not talking about necessarily just animals. We use the word prey to mean anything an animal eats. So you could think of a seed that looks like the background. So you've got our grain. So you've got, say, let's say some kind of bird. Uh, you think of pigeons is a good example, actually. Pigeons out in the wild, feral pigeons, right? Uh, they just peck at well, anything. But they like grain. But if there's grain and a bunch of dirt, they have to detect what is dirt and what is food. Because dirt doesn't have a lot of the nutritional value that food does. That's why we don't eat dirt. As I know, some people eat dirt. <laughs> Look, there's seven and a half million of us. There's some people who eat everything. And there's always a website dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's behind some kind of paywall. <laughs> um, so the food may be hidden. Um, it may be hidden in by camouflage, but it also may be hidden inside something. So you've got to open up a muscle to eat it. Delicious muscles. Or you've got to open up a seed. You know, a chickadee, when they give them sunflower seeds, you can burn sunflower seeds, they don't eat the whole seed. They actually open the damn thing, which is a very cool thing to watch. Um, and they tend to be left or right-footed. They hold it on one of their feet and they peck at it. And the birds, you know, but it's not like mostly right-footed and very few lefties like these people. It's 50-50, but there is a foot preference that birds have, which is kind of neat. Right? So the food might be hidden that way as well. Okay. There's been a lot of success recently. Really, the study of foraging in general doesn't get interesting to the 1970s at all because people started using optimality models. I don't know why I've capitalized that. Same thing we talked about optimality. We've talked, I've, I've hinted at it quite a bit. We talked about the mobbing stuff in the, in the adaptation section. I think I just called that adaption, which I don't think is a word. Adaptation. Oh, adaptation. That's good. Um, so we'll talk about optimality models there. And we're going to use an optimality approach here. It's the, it's the most effective approach for uh, studying foraging. Optimality models, as I talked about the other day, but I'll reiterate this, they're all about costs and benefits. All the costs and benefits.
So we're going to have to define the costs. We're going to have to define the benefits. All right. So how do these things work? The first thing you have to identify is the decision. We had a whole bunch of possible decisions just a few minutes ago, right? A bunch of examples. Should I eat? When should I stop? What kind of food should I eat? So it might be like, when should an where should an animal feed? Where should it forage? So it could be something sort of spatial. It could be how long should it stay? This is, again, nice with that sort of, these both go into that patchy environment kind of thing. What should I eat? I don't find those, more, I don't find those as interesting, but that's just me. So what kind of food should I eat? Question like, especially if an animal's in an area that has both kinds of food, which kind should I load up on? This could be a choice that the animal's making moment to moment, or this could be an evolutionary decision that the species is making. And I know the species isn't making the decision, etc. This is how it would evolve. Make sense so far? Good. So, one possible choice uh, within an animal's lifetime is should I leave? Right. Should I stay or should I go now? <laughs> I actually saw somebody give a talk once and they, the, 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 the title uh, actually mentioned the clash, which I thought was pretty cool. You can do stuff like that at conferences, it's harder to do in papers. You gotta get really famous before you can do that in papers. One by Al Camel, the title of one of his papers is Rules to Leave By. <laughs> that's, that's kind of clever. Decide, from the quotes there, to evolve the mechanism to detoxify a plant. Now, that's not something the animal actually decides, and it's not something you can do in your lifetime. So you've got to evolve that mechanism. Decide how long your chewing teeth should be. Again, that's not something you decide, and that's something that's going to be over evolutionary time. That's not going to be something within the animal's lifetime. When you think about the, I talked about Anderson and Krebs and their notion of the, uh, the you have to um, find your own seeds during food hoarding. That's an evolutionary sort of foraging model, right? That's over evolutionary time. Foraging, or sorry, um, Food sorting will only evolve if you're finding your own seeds. We talked about that. <coughs> okay. First thing you have to do is you have to make some assumptions about the currency. The currency is going to be something like, if you identify the currency, um, probably cal it's, who's in caloric, perhaps. You know, how many calories you get. So, what fitness correlated variable is important? It's probably going to be something, if it's about foraging, it's going to be something like caloric density, it's going to be something like calories per unit time, quite possibly. Is the animal going to try to maximize energy gain? Is it going to minimize travel time? So you might not even be worried about the, 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 the food the animal eats as much as you're worried about, does it get there quickly? Okay. Or does it get there not so quickly for each patch, but on average, does it get there more quickly? Right. So the average travel time, not just the average for each one. Here's a good one. Probability of survival until nightfall. We see that one used quite a bit. Do you live to fight another day, basically? So it's the probability of you living just long enough to get to the nighttime and you go from there. Okay? Okay. 
it could be calories per hour or some other unit quantity. Sometimes you can, because you know about the food that this animal is going to eat, if you're looking at a foraging model for an individual species, and it's within the animal's lifetime, you know what the food is, you can actually quantify this. So you say, oh, I know how much, uh, you know, you're thinking about, say, something like something that grazes, I don't know, like cow. Wouldn't be very interesting, really, because most cows now aren't really out in the wild. But we know they eat grass. You know the caloric density of grass, we know how many calories per pound or whatever, per kilo, and then we can just, now that's easy to do. Right? Finally, we have to make assumptions about the constraints on the behavior. What kind of constraints? What fixed properties of the animal and the environment affect the decision? Like you might be say, could you build a model that says, well, I could evolve the ability to have photosynthesis? No, you can't. You're an animal. So that's not going to work. Perhaps I could evolve the ability to just imagine food that would appear in front of me, like a holodeck of sorts on Star Trek. The world doesn't work that way. So now those are ridiculous constraints, but there are constraints like the animal can only run so freaking fast. Um, The animal has a certain size stomach. <laughs> right? He's kind of it. These are, so you're thinking of things that are reasonable. How much energy can you get out of a food item? Wouldn't it be great if I could find one small pill that was enough food for the entire day? Like all the, you know, in future movies in the, back in the 1950s, just eat your pills, son. Crossover episode between the Jetsons and the Flintstones is like that. You know the future? No? Sad. You've seen that one? Yeah. I love crossovers. I love when that happens TV shows. I think you as a kid, you're hoping, like, because you don't know they stopped making the Jetsons in 67 and the Flintstones in 66. So you're thinking, well, maybe there'll be another one of those. Oh, I've seen this one. When do the new episodes come out? <laughs> Then they revived the Jetsons in like Right? So you got in like a, a field, you have one patch of flowers and another patch of flowers. So once you're in the patch, the encounter rate's pretty good. Right? What's something that's going to affect the encounter rate when you're in a patch of food? Other animals, possibility, so you got some competitors. What else? Now, see, that would be something we could build into the model. We could say, we're going to assume no competitors. Now, if we've got an animal that lives in a solitary kind of environment, that's probably reasonable. We could throw that in. On the other hand, there may be cases where we, we can't make that assumption. And then we're going to have to build in some assumption about other animals being around. It's another possibility. It's going to affect the encounter rate of food. Matt? The frequency of the food itself. Like, yeah. how often there are patches or how big they are? How dense it is in, like, within a patch, that kind yeah. of thing? Sure. Now, that, you're right, that's certainly the case. Uh, JJ, yeah, sorry. Uh, the season or the, the time sure. of day? Sure. Time of day is a good one. Time of day is a nice one. 
Because um, what would we assume likely? We would assume that the later in the day, the less food, wouldn't we? Because other animals have already had a chance to eat. So if we're getting later in the day, we're going to have less and less food. And think about it if it's nectar. Right? Once you've eaten, once you've sucked all the nectar out of some flowers, it doesn't come back till tomorrow. So the amount of time you've actually been there already is going to affect the encounter rate, isn't it? Because the longer you've been there, the more you've eaten. We tend to assume, we don't tend to build into these models the idea that animals are very choosy once they're there. Well, I don't want to do this. I've absorbed that enough. I don't want to make a pig of myself. You know, <laughs> you don't see a lot of hummingbirds doing that. You've got to, your heart beats 500 times a minute, some ridiculous number. You need a lot of sugar. So we've got to build these things into these models. How quickly the nectar source through themselves. And we tend to typically talk about 24 hours. That's actually typically right. The nice thing, again, if we're looking at something like an actual species we know about, and we're talking about building a model just for one species, we can say, what kind of flowers do they feed off of? And then we just need to call a botanist, you know, the boring biology. Hey, Brandon Chan, <laughs> tell me about flowers. He says, I'm not a botanist, I'm an ecologist. He says, I don't care. You're boring because of your flowers. <laughs> and then he tells you how long it takes for it to renew. And then he says, Todd, he's hanging up the phone. <laughs> I kid because I love. How often will I encounter a giant man eating shark? Right? So predators. See, it's interesting because to a point, the idea of walking to the restaurant and making a decision can be quite instructive, as I said, but we don't have to forage really anymore, right? A lot of humans really don't. We forage at Rome's and Metro, right? And the constraint is how much money do I have this week to buy groceries? So we don't really have to worry so much about predators. You don't have to fight off others. Usually. Usually. Yeah, I've been there when it's been like that, though. It wasn't not so much here. Back in Newfoundland, you'd see people getting all excited about bologna. And I'm not kidding. They'd be looking at them like they were turkeys. You'd it's a big hunk of bologna. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. You ask Keo, he'll tell you. It's true. So our goal is to determine what decision, given the constraints, maximizes the currency. Why I capitalize currency, I do not know. My son who capitalizes all names, because he thinks he's German, um, obviously comes by this, obviously comes by it, honestly. He has his iPad at school now, so sometimes he just texts me reviews of his lunch. <laughs> it's like, uh, penguin crackers aren't my favorite. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you ate all of the other snacks. <laughs> so this is going to be quantitative. We're actually going to get numbers. Yay! Right? The model made precise testable predictions. You will hear people that don't understand this and don't know about this kind of stuff say, evolutionary theory hasn't been testable by Boston. They're wrong. <laughs> this comes right out of evolutionary theory and it is making a quantifiable, testable hypothesis. That's the really nice thing about this. I mean, I mean, I mean people that actually accept evolution by natural selection. Like, not, I'm not talking about those other people. Right? I'm talking about people that actually go, no problem with evolutionary theory. Yeah, yeah, you can't test it. 
Yes, you can. Okay. That's the researcher's name is Belovsky. It sounds like a, a spin-off of Pinky in the Brain. Belovsky's done a lot of work since it's about the squirrels. A lot of really, actually, it's a shoe. A lot of really interesting stuff um, looking at individual species and saying, let's look at often, let's, let's look at, usually it's diet choice decisions for a species. So, so there's a whole lot of really neat stuff, Belovsky stuff. So how much aquatic vegetation should a moose eat? Now, I'm waiting for Belovsky to do how much wood should a woodchuck <laughs> That's a whole other matter. Um, there's aquatic vegetation and terrestrial vegetation. Okay? And around here we know this, that you know, moose are out in the bush, and they walk around, and they're kind of grazing animals, basically. Uh, but they get near water quite a bit of the time, and they eat water plants. But they also eat non-water now, there are a couple of constraints. The animal needs a certain amount of sodium. And the animal also has, uh, the way they digest food is they have a rumen. You know what a rumen is? It's basically a stomach that ferments stuff. Most of your grazing animals do it that way. So it goes from one area to another, maybe from one stomach to another. And it's basically a big fermentation vat. So your guess would be that the moose farts don't smell good. Just saying. Okay. So here we have terrestrial plants, that's grams of those, and here we have aquatic plants. First of all, there's also an energy constraint. If the animal doesn't get a certain amount of energy, it starts from its food, it has to use its fat reserves. So, it's got to get something more than this, okay? The sodium constraint should tell you something. Uh, there's only sodium in the aquatic plants. There is no sodium in terrestrial plants. They need salt. The terrestrial plants basically need salt. This is what this is saying. But there is some sodium in the aquatic plants, right? You can see because it's along this axis. Now, if you ate only aquatic plants, so that's no terrestrial, only aquatic, you'd be up here. That's as high as you can get because that's most of your gut can take to hold. That's the rumen constraint. Problem here. Not enough energy. Right? If you eat only terrestrial plants, you'd be here. Right? Yes. Somewhere along here, but nowhere on the y-axis, except you have to have some sodium. So it's got to be above there. So it's going to be somewhere in this little shaded area that's where the animal is actually going. That's where the decision should be. So then, does that make sense to understand how Velocity modeled this? It's quite kind of neat, actually. And it's also really easy to understand. You think like, the gut can only hold so much, they need so much energy, and they need sodium. Not so bad. So do they get more energy from the terrestrial? Well, read the graph. Well, I yeah, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. No, but how do you know that? Um, take a look at the equal amount of, let's see, what's, what's the equal amount here? There's the energy constraint here. Yeah, they get more energy from, uh, actually, no, I'm misreading the graph. There's less constraint as you go further on the right. Yes. So yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that makes sense because water plants also have water in them. So the amount of grams of food you're eating, it's it's sopping wet. So there's, there's water. Yeah. So you basically, they want to eat as little. Yeah, this actually. 
They want to eat as little water plant as they can because it takes up more space in their gut because it's got water in it. But they have to eat some because it's where the sodium comes from. So they've got to eat at least this much of the aquatic. But look where they make the decision. They, make, they eat the least possible amount of, and this is what the star means, the least possible amount of the water plant, of the aquatic plant. But they maximize the energy right, by eating as much as possible of the terrestrial. So where these two curves intersect, that's actually what they do. So the cool thing is, Velocity made this prediction and then went out and watched some moose, and that's what the moose did. Kind of neat. And it's actually pretty simple to see how this kind of model can get built. All right. Questions on that? Now, there is a, I don't want to go through it. There actually are, uh, like equations to those lines, and you solve where the two things meet, but that's not, first of all, that's something you could all do, or there was a time in your life when you could do it. Uh, you know, grade seven, uh, grade eight. So it's, you're solving a system of, of linear equations, pretty simple. You learned that a long time ago. Maybe you didn't. They don't teach that anymore? The show where lines intersect? They must. Yeah, great, no, there you go. Maddie says grade nine, so I figure it's grade nine. Long, longer time ago for me than her, so I'm going to trust her memory up better than mine. I learned to do that in kindergarten. <laughs> now, if we get, instead of looking at within an individual species, let's look at all possible species, like all species that do patchy food uh, eating. Okay, this is patchy food eating that are that forage in patches. Charnov came up with this in 1976. And again, it sounds old, uh, is, but this is what got optimal foraging really going. And the story I've heard from John Krebs is that Charnoff came up with this after drinking a great deal, which is pretty impressive to me. And then we're all like graduate students and postdocs. So that's kind of cool. Way to go. If P is profitability, that's the profitability of the food that you're getting. So P equals E over H. E is energy. H is handling time. So the profitability of a food item equals the energy that you get from it divided by the handling time. Handling time is something like how long it takes to open up seed or open a piece of uh, like, a, like, a, like a mollusk. Okay. The handling time on some things is very, very small. It's just how much time you have to chew it. But on other things, it can be quite long. Opening a seed, opening a, a, a clam or something like that. So an animal should leave a food patch when the profitability of the current patch equals the profitability of all patches divided by the number of patches, or P bar, the average profitability. Do you see why that's a sensible decision? Profitability where I am right now is now equal to the profitability of all the, the average profitability of all the other patches. Well, now I'm getting less than the average profitability in my environment, right? You see that? 
So it's like I'm getting the average. I'm, I'm, I'm eating the average. That's what I'm eating. I'm now getting right at the average. As soon as I stay any longer, I'm now getting less than the average rate of return, the average profitability in my whole environment. Why am I still here? To me? Make sense? Okay. Here's the energy gain. Here's this is the time on this axis. And the travel time, which is going to be a constant, going to move this curve over. You can probably see that knowing calculus is really useful in doing this kind of modeling. The other kind is pretty simple, straight lines. We're looking at rate of return here, and it's going to be really high, because this is return per time, food value per time, and then it's going to level off. Right? Now, travel time, time to hatch, the maximum net gain we have to do, I never said to do no math. What the animal has to do, well, the animal doesn't make sure it has to behave this way. Such that the slope of this function is at its maximum net gain. Here it's going to leave too early. Here it leaves too late. So again, the animal isn't actually doing this calculus, because to get the slope of a curve, you would have to take the derivative of the function, and I don't know, uh, I, I'm, how are you here not taking calculus? Yeah, so most of you can't do this. So, so the idea that, you know, a blue jay out looking for food is like, well, okay, let's see, so you go, so it's, uh, it's an x squared, so it's 2x. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying they're doing this, but their nervous systems somehow are doing it. Now, look, the slope's going to change because we're going from here. We have to move this all the way over here. So the travel time is short or long. will change how long an animal stays in a patch. So the travel time is going to be factored in here. I love Google image search. You can find anything. Optimal foraging theory. You know, patch leaving decision graphs. Oh, look, here's three of them. So calculus actually plays a pretty big role in the model. So when you read things, uh, a lot of foraging papers, especially not, not so much ones about individual species doing diet choice, but ones about that have to do with like patch leaving, that kind of stuff, which is sort of, I think, what the interesting work is, personally. Um, you see systems of equations and uh, calculus. You see integration and, and hidden derivatives. <coughs> so it's all the slopes and curves again, points, which is all calculus. Well, it's half of calculus. The key thing, though, even if you don't know calculus, just look at these graphs. You can see the animal making the, these kinds of decisions. There's sort of the logic of making these kinds of decisions does it make some sense. Right? And if you haven't taken calculus, you take my word that it's all about finding these slopes of curves. And it's beautiful. And you're missing out if you don't know the calculus. It's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Math that describes the universe because you can multiply the exponent times the coefficient. Like when Leibniz and Newton, these guys like, well, I wonder what would happen if I multiplied the exponent times the coefficient? Why did they even think that? That's great. When I was in like, when I was first learning that, when I was in high school, I thought, well, I'm going to try all kinds of stupid things, see if it does anything. I didn't discover anything. 
you know, what about if I could find a new formula for the area of something? That was like a pretty four. Brodbeck's rule, all, that, that's why I was you know, trying to discover my own rule, my own law. Turned out Brodbeck's rule is they know how to do this shit already. <laughs> okay, so we're going to make some assumptions. Uh, the animal has to know P for every batch in its environment. Holy crap, there's an assumption. It has to actually not even know in quotes, but that doesn't make it any less of an assumption. It doesn't have to know how to do calculus, really. That just describes the behavior. But it actually, to make a decision like this, a behavioral decision, it actually has to know the profitability of every patch in its environment. The animal must, in fact, be omniscient. Perhaps a tenuous assumption. It has to know... Say so to know that it has to know E and H to get P for every patch in its environment. Oh, and it has to have to divide because it's got to divide E by H. Holy crap! That's easy. So how do they do this? Okay, they aren't doing calculus, obviously. And one would guess they're probably not even doing the dividing to know all, all rates of return. What they use are what are called rules of thumb. A rule of thumb is just like a general get through. It's like, a, what do you call that? Uh, a heuristic. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Not an algorithm, but a heuristic. It, it solves a problem pretty well and usually gives you the right decision or a decent decision. You know, a good heuristic, for example, if you, you ever listen to the American uh, radio station, nobody listens to the radio anymore, but when you hear like what the temperature's gonna be, and they say in Fahrenheit, and you gotta convert it to Celsius, what do you do? You divide it in half and subtract 30. That, that's just, it doesn't, that's not, it doesn't give you the actual number, but it gives you something close. Or you go the other way, if you, to, to go from Celsius to Fahrenheit, double it and add 30. It doesn't actually give you the number, but it gives you something pretty close. So 20 is roughly 70. Uh, so 20 peace-loving, free-thinking degrees are 70 Yankee imperialist running dogs of the bourgeois landowning class degrees. I was just trying to speak like I'm from North Korea for a second here. It's not dead on, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Right, we have friends in Australia. If you know anybody in Australia, what time is it there? It's the same time as it is in here, but it's nighttime. It's not, the whole continent's not like that, but look, it's close enough for rock and roll. Right, so you go, should I call my friend Ian right now? Oh, he's getting ready to go to bed, because it's 10 to 11 at night. Besides, he uses Facebook, I could just... So, these rules of thumb, by the way, there's a whole urban myth that a rule of thumb is, and no, it's sexist. Because the rule was, the size of a stick you could beat your wife with was the size of your thumb. That's not where it comes from. Everything isn't some sort of political statement. It's just an expression, and it, predates those rules. Those rules didn't exist in a lot of places, by the way. No one's denying that. But the idea of rule of thumb comes before those rules were around and written down and codified. Just saying. Okay. Just stopping someone from asking me that. But people think that, so you're offensive. Good. Um, <laughs> my goal. So what's a good rule of thumb? Um, the animal will have what's called a giving up time. How long has it been since I've eaten in this patch? Boy, 
it's been longer than X. I should leave now. Now, X might be 10 seconds, it might be five minutes. They might have a, a run of bad luck. That's in, in, the, in, the, in the literature, it's, the, the acronym is R-O-B-L, run of bad luck. So this is when the pigeon is pecking at the ground, trying to get seed, and it's like, oh, that was dirt. Oh, that was dirt again. That was rocks. That was, I gotta get out of this place. There's no food left here. See, because the neat thing is, animals that forage in patches actually behave like this. They behave like they are doing calculus. And they actually do know the rate of return of every patch in their environment. They behave that way. They, and they can't be doing calculus. Well, yeah, there is one possibility. They're all doing calculus and are omniscient. That's probably not the explanation. I guess it's possible. It seems exceedingly unlikely that something that just takes a shit anywhere it wants can actually do calculus. I don't know why I put those two together. I'm just saying. Even a pretty simple organism is based on this. So the idea of having a giving up time stored in memory, and that giving up time is actually going to vary based on things it's learned in its life. And over the last few days, last few weeks, whatever. At what point should I leave? Right, so it has what's called this sort of memory window, and it slides like, moves along like this. So there's all these different times of how long they've stayed in the patch, and maybe the memory window is a couple hours long, so it's how how's everything worked out today in the last couple of hours, and it slides along. Run a bad luck, same sort of thing. So what's the psychologist's job here? Because like the theoretical population biologist sits there and goes, I'm making models and doing calculus. I don't have to worry about mechanisms. And then they go test it and say, say, look, animals behave that way. My work here is done. And the psychologist wants to know, how am I going to, you know, I'm going to look at the mechanism. How's the animal going to do this? See, these are predict predictable, precise predictable uh, results. So, you know, it should be this long. So they can tell us what an animal should do. The psychologist tells us what the animal, how the animal will do this. You can test this in the wild, you can test this in the lab. So the people that have the training in looking at behavior and looking at mechanisms, that's where the psychologists come in. This, this was actually the first real bridge uh, between ethologists and sort of theoretical population biologists and psychologists was the, when this torture stuff came out, people got excited. A lot of psychologists misunderstood it, by the way. They leveled criticisms at it saying, well, animals can't do calculus. And it's like, you know, you, know, you don't get it. I'm describing their behavior. I'm not saying they're doing the calculus. But some people got it and said, oh, I see. So you say they should behave this way. Now, I know how to do behavioral experiments in the lab. I will now detect, I will now uh, run experiments. And I can easily vary uh, things like encounter rate. I can easily vary things like how quickly a patch renews. You know how this is done? This is done with a Skinner box. So you take a simple set setup. So this is looking from above, okay? And you have a pecking key here and a pecking key here. Now today we would probably use a touch screen and we'd have two stimuli lit up on the screen. And let's say this one is a fixed ratio 50. Fixed ratio, so for every 50th 
peck the pigeon makes, and you use pigeons here, every 50th peck the pigeon makes, it gets a piece of food. And let's make this one an FR10. Every 10 packs, fixed ratio 10, every 10 packs the pigeon makes, it gets a piece of food. We can, now, we do this, that's, you guys took learning with me all about this. You can certainly do this kind of experiment. Um, animals learn how to do it, no problem. Um, we can think of these as two different food patches. This one has five times the rate of return of this one. We actually know what the, we can figure out profitability here, because we've got handling time, how many packs, and food. We, oh, we could plug those numbers into to, to the marginal value theorem and see when they're going to switch pecking keys. Because they do switch pecking keys. I know you might think to yourself, what's an animal going to do? Just going to peck at FR10. That's not what they do. They peck, peck at the FR10 uh, 10 key five times as much as they peck at the FR50 key. They match, pigeons match their, and, and, and other animals, and you would too, by the way, like put you in a Skinner box, like they did in that episode of Lost. They woke up in Skinner boxes. You ever see that one? I don't know, I gave up on Lost, but I did see that once. It was a still in Skinner box. I gave up on Lost when I got up once to go get a drink and I came back and I was confused. I didn't know what was going on in the show. <laughs> gotcha. It was way too much effort. I'm going to stop watching the show. It's on Netflix now. I can stream it. I can watch little bits. Go back. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come back. So what we have here are two patches. And they'll distribute their behavior a 5 to 1 ratio. That's called the matching law in psychology. And when do they switch? When the rate of return that they're getting matches the average of the two. So what's the average of the two? Five to one, six, three. Wow. Now, we could put factor in travel time. How could we factor in travel time? What would you do to factor in travel time? Remember, a Skinner box is this big. Any ideas how you could put trap? And we're going to sort of basically model travel time in this box. Carly, you have an idea. Make them have to go to the back of the box. Back of the box, something like this. How would we do that? Well, it's actually pretty simple. You put a barrier here, and they have to get up and leave. They're going to walk around. And they still will, by the way. And we can actually measure how long it takes down to the travel time. There's an, even e there's an easier way to do this, too. Well, how could we behaviorally do this without a, a barrier? Other ideas? Yeah, please. If you, if you said it's a touch beam, you suddenly change from one to the other, if you, um, you make one disappear? Yes. Yeah. But, remember, the animal has to make the decision to do the traffic. Oh, okay. Right? You're along the right track. Oops. Why don't we put another key in there that says, oh, if you want to switch, you've got to peck this 20 times. Oh, now I'm traveling. <laughs> and that's what it gets. This kind of approach was pioneered um, by Sarah Shuttleworth. So, because uh, my PhD supervisor, and Sarah was one of the people that really got into sort of straddled the line, straddles the line between being a biologist and a psychologist. In fact, she's a full professor, emeritus now, emerita, because she's a woman, of uh, ecology and evolutionary biology and of psychology in the University of Toronto. Because basically she did both, and that's how people in her lab were trained. We did both. It's like, what do you study? You have a behavior. Are you a psychologist? Well, I'll get my degree in this, I guess so. So you can actually do this behaviorally. This is what psychologists, people like Shuttleworth, and some of her students, like Catherine Plowright, who's now at the University of Ottawa, the kind of work that they've done. So 
what we can look at, the psychologists who study animal cognition, animal behavior, we can look at cognitive and behavioral mechanisms that animals use to reach optimality. Now, the, again, the animals aren't deciding to behave optimally. It's not what they're doing. But selection, or evolution, has selected for mechanisms that allow them to behave optimally. So these cognitive abilities might be things like being able to remember how long it takes to do this trick. And in something like a pigeon that can do, I wouldn't call it math, but have sort of numerical abilities, the ability to directly, um, but what's it going to have to do if it's going to do this math? It's going to have to either do, know the energy value, well that's easy because each food piece can be one. So that's not so hard. It's got to be able to keep track of time. I can tell you that animals can time pretty well. That's easy. Um, we talked about animal timing before on the circadian level, but also for small animals they can do it. Not a problem. Then it's got to do division. Dividing's hard. It wasn't just hard for you when you first learned the division. You know, that's the hard one to learn. Uh, it's hard for all animals. Animals can all sort of spontaneously add a lot of times, but they can't subtract, they can't divide. Those are, those are the hardest. So, instead maybe of doing energy and handling time, maybe they're actually directly perceiving rate. Maybe there's a cognitive mechanism for perceiving rate. Makes some sense. Then it's nervous system to make these quick calculations. Like how much food am I getting now? Is it am I getting less than I get on average normally? Then I should leave. Now, optimal foraging theory tends to be about function, right? It's what should an animal do in order to forage optimally. What, how should an animal behave? In its own lifetime or over evolutionary time, but it's, it's about function. It's about function. The mechanism stuff we talked about in the last few minutes, that's cause. So an animal could be doing stuff that we describe with calculus. But the cognitive mechanism that has evolved is not the ability to do calculus in your head if you're a pigeon. And that is a really important distinction to make. Okay? I'm not saying they're doing calculus in their heads. That's not what anybody's saying. We can describe most phenomena in the universe using calculus. That's the way it works. But the things themselves aren't doing the calculus. Right? I dropped my keys on the ground, they will accelerate towards the earth, 9.8 meters per second squared. They aren't doing that on purpose. It's just a phenomenon. It happens. Right? So you've got to remember that. And this is something psychologists have had over the years, not so much anymore. When this foraging stuff first came, people are really excited because they said, wow, we can plug numbers into here and get predictions about how animals are going to behave in something like that. Well, we, perhaps we could see if the cognitive mechanisms make one prediction and the foraging mechanisms make another. And you say, no, the foraging aren't mechanisms. Foraging is about function. Okay? 
The, it is interesting, however, if we design an experiment and we say, okay, we expect to get one thing from the cognitive mechanism, the sort of cognitive theories, the, the learning stuff says, says this should happen, and the forging stuff says, says this should happen, which one is going to be right? And if one is wrong, why? Well, obviously there's something wrong with the model if it doesn't describe real behavior. Right? But why, does, why would the animal behave differently than optimal? Well, maybe your model's wrong because of X, Y, or Z. So, look at times when optical forging theory makes one sort of predictions, and animal cognition sort of approaches make different predictions. That can be a very fruitful area of research. It has been for a lot of people. And that's something Sarah said, uh, has been saying for years. And in fact, if, maybe we can Skype her right now and ask her if it's proper. Hi, Sarah, I want to talk to my class. No. She would, actually, probably. So we look at when this one makes one set of predictions and another set, and why is this wrong? Or why is this wrong? They're not competing explanations, though. Just because something like the matching law makes one prediction and aqua foraging makes another prediction, they might make the same prediction, they're both right and that's fine. Because one's about function and one's about cause. They're not competing explanations. They're not competing explanations. Questions about this stuff? What's with it being 11.07? Feel cheated out of your tuition if we live in eight minutes early? Nobody? Okay. All right, guys. See you next time.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.